Lord, what can we say other than a mighty fortress is our God? That's what we proclaim. That's what we are thankful for, that you are a refuge, a, a shelter in the storms of life. Just one of the many, many facets of you and blessings that come from being your child. And we worship you this morning with our hearts and with our minds as we open our Bibles. Speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a seat if you would. Get your Bibles out. Jacob, can you do me a favor? You turn this on. Do you want to do that? I am so technologically challenged. I don't know how to turn this thing on. So. It's red. He's falling down. He's knocking it over. He's moving it. It's, it's, it's blue now, but there's nothing on the screen. There we go. No. Psyche? Psyche? There we go. I can see now. All is well. Because, you know, I couldn't preach unless that was on. You do know that, right? Right. But we're talking about um, what the Bible says about. We talked about divorce in the Old Testament. Well, this uh, morning we're going to talk about divorce and what the New Testament says about marriage and divorce. And so I want to start with kind of talking about reasons for divorce. Um, I'm going to put this up for you. Can you guys see that? Yep. It's about as big as I can make the font without it destroying the size of this screen. These are the number of divorces. In 1867, you can see, of course, there were 10,000 divorces in the United States. Think about that. 10,000 divorces. Now, you go forward just over 30 years, the number jumps to 48,000 divorces. Now, the divorce rate at that point was 5%, and what we're seeing here is divorce is becoming less taboo because you just didn't divorce. You know, you, so we're stuck together. Whether you're happy or not, happy to be stuck with you. Remember that? Now you go forward about, what, almost just over 20 years, and you see this jump of 142,000. Can anyone tell me why that is? Any guesses? And I researched this the yesterday, because I had this thought when I woke up in the morning, and I researched this. And so I found this, and I, I can't tell you, a half a dozen sites easily, this data here. Um, World War I. What happened in World War I? The men went where? To the front. What did the women do? They didn't stay home. They stayed home, but they went into the workforce. And they experienced independence and freedom. And the result? Divorces went up. 1929, you see a, a, a continuing increase at 200,000 divorces. What was that time frame? The Roaring Twenties. And what was that? Marked by 
women's liberation movement. Once again, we're seeing an increase in, in, in divorces. These are articles that are CDC data, uh, uh, you know, various universities, women, all this is saying the same. I'm not trying to put the blame of divorces on, on anyone, you know, on, on the females, for example, but this is just what history shows us. This is not for debate either. This is everywhere. Uh, 1933, you know, it's a decrease of by 70,000 divorces. Why is that the case? The Great Depression. What happened? You had to stay together. You had to stay together. Exactly. 1939, what's happening again? World War II is beginning, right? See that jump up to 251,000? Rosie the Riveter, same thing as in 1919. Women in the workforce experiencing independence and freedom, and divorces surge. 1946, look at that jump from 251,000 to 689,000. What happened there in 1946? End of World War II. All those women that were working, husbands coming back, massive spike. Biggest spike we've ever seen in the history of the United States in terms of divorce. 1958, you know, you go, what, 12 years into the future, we see a pretty significant drop to 368,000. Why is that the case? Nope. The all-American family ideal. Remember the cleavers? A big surge for the family. Okay, and divorce rate at this point in time was uh, 14%. But you go ahead 11 years and you see another jump in the 60s to 639,000. Well, what was happening in the 60s? Free love, hippie movement, the rise of feminism, what they say. There's an expanding economy, so these women are going to the workforce. The United States is going through a change. It's becoming more and more progressive, rejecting the traditional roles and traditional models for the family. And look at 1979. That is a massive, almost doubles in a 10-year period. Well, what happened in the 70s? No. No-fault divorce law. Marriage, as a result, goes down 30%. But divorces go up 40%. And then look at 2017, you know, just five years ago. Look at that number. It went way down. What, we have, what they're saying is that the generations that grew up with all these divorces didn't want that, okay? So they're not, divorces have gone down, but they've gone down for many reasons. One of them being they're just living together. They're not marrying, Okay. So we think we know better than God, and you can see all of this through this data here, um, and we can rebel against him, and this is what has happened. But what are some of the reasons why people divorce? Well, if you go back the last seven years, in August of 2015, uh, there's a, a group called the Infidelity Recovery Institute, and it listed the most common reasons people give for divorce. Fast forward two years, in 2017, the Institute for Family Studies released an article entitled, Reasons People Give for Divorce. It was based on multiple state and national surveys. 
if you go back to last year in September of 2021, um, there's an author and a life coach by the name of Shelley Warren. She listed, again, the 10 most common reasons for divorce. Each list had these reasons in common. Just take a look at these. Lack of commitment, too much arguing, infidelity, marrying too young, unrealistic expectations, a lack of equality in relationships. In other words, they're not equally distributing responsibilities in the marriage. Um, lack of preparation for marriage and abuse. So they all three studies had these in them. Okay? Two of the three sources had these additional reasons. And I thought finances would have sure have been one of them in the first one. One source had these additional reasons, incompatibility or drinking drug use. But this next one is, is interesting. One other source had these additional resources as reasons for divorce. Look at weight gain. So what we're seeing here is that since 2015, the reasons for divorce have roughly stayed the same. Now you could probably sum this study up these studies up this way, says that since most couples fail to prepare for marriage, they have unrealistic expectations and marry too young. Early on in marriage, they argue too much, fail to equally share responsibilities, encounter physical or emotional abuse, and for some, the pain of infidelity, because one or both spouses is not committed to the marriage relationship. The end result is divorce. And does that sound familiar? <clears throat> yeah. This is living in reality. This is what reality is. But this list of reasons, <coughs> excuse me, it stands in stark contrast uh, to the traditional Christian view of divorce that's summed up in the Westminster Confession of Faith written in 1646. It says, in the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. Nothing but adultery, now watch, another reason comes up, or such willful desertion or abandonment of a marriage as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage. None of those reasons we just looked at other than infidelity or adultery. I mean, so we've added all these reasons. That's including, I remember growing up, the, the movie Irreconcilable Differences. Do you remember that? Years ago, back in the 80s. I was a young child. I remember seeing that. So we have adultery and desertion or abandonment as biblical reasons to divorce. Now, we've looked at the Old Testament and divorce. So let's say, let's find out what the New Testament says about divorce. And it says a lot, actually. So let's take a look. The New Testament in divorce, if you'd get your Bibles out. Yeah. Turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verses 3 through 9. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him. And asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Because that was the ongoing understanding at that time, because of the divorce laws written by Moses. You may recall that there was one particular rabbi or Jewish that, that 
divorced a wife because she burned his food. Okay? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, obviously, we've seen over the last three weeks, so we don't need to go into much depth, but just need to be reminded us that Jesus is simply reaffirming what was clearly taught in the Old Testament. And that is this, that God designed marriage as a monogamous, lifelong, permanent oneness between a man and a woman. Because of the hardness of the sinful human heart that came as a result of the fall of man and the curse that is now in the marriage relationship, Moses allowed divorce for one reason. What was that? Adultery. Adultery, exactly. So even divorcing for a biblical reason is to be done with, with much trepidation because God hates divorce and because a better way is to love and to forgive and to restore. And remember we went over Hosea last week? It gives us an example of, of restoration in the case of repeated adultery where, where there is a willingness on the part of the one who committed adultery. But where there is an unwilling partner, divorce is a concession or permission of grace to the innocent party who cannot bring about a reconciliation. But look at the rest of the conversation, verses 10 through 12 of Matthew 19. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. Obviously, some of these disciples were married, right? I mean, if I have to stay with this woman, except for the, she has to stay with me except for this one condition, and marriage and relationships are hard, it'd be better not to just marry. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. There are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He was able to accept this, let him accept it. Because of the strain in the marriage due to the curse, in Genesis 3.16, the disciples conclude it's better to be single if you just can't get out of a marriage. And everyone who's been married has had the thought, how do I get out of this marriage? Who is this alien that I married, right? This freak of nature. There's times I'm like, look at me. I'm difficult to live with. And so Jesus affirms their conclusion, but acknowledges not everybody can, can handle being single. He says only those who've been born with a congenital defect, those who've made that way by castration, or those who've chosen singleness because they're going to devote themselves in service to the kingdom of heaven. So you're not to avoid marriage just because it's meant to be a permanent relationship. And that's a big reason why people avoid getting married today. They don't want to be stuck with somebody. And you're not to avoid marriage just because the only way to get out of the relationship is adultery. 
See, being single and spending a lifetime avoiding sexual temptation is no easy task. It is accomplished only by those called to singleness. If you burn, get married. You will fail if you burn with sexual desire. Now, Jesus only presented the divine ideal for marriage. He does not deal with exceptions, okay? The divine ideal, man and woman together, permanent oneness forever. Well, until they, they pass away. Because there's no marriage in heaven, you know that? There's no marriage in heaven. Now, what do I mean by exceptions? Well, for example, what if you became a Christian but have divorced many times for unbiblical reasons? Who then is your wife? Or you became a Christian but are living with somebody in a common law marriage? So by exceptions, I mean the complications that come as a result of the sinful messiness that we make of life. Fortunately for Paul does deal with exceptions in 1 Corinthians 7. And I want you to keep this in mind that Paul ministered to a Gentile community in 1 Corinthians, in the Corinthian church. They had not been educated in the law of Moses, so their lives were literally a mess. Just listen to what Paul had to deal with. Much of the population of the Roman world, given during the time that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, people were slaves. Owners did not marry slaves. Instead, they mated them through a process called tent companionship. The slave owner looked over the slaves, paired them up, and hoped they would produce other healthy slaves. So these slaves entered into live-in relationships, much like contemporary society in America. And since the majority of the early church was made up of slaves, you could see the mess Paul was trying to clean up. There was also what we'd call common law marriage in Rome. If you lived with a woman for over a year, you were considered to be legally married by Roman common law. This res resulted in people doing what? The experiment for a year in a live-in relationship. So people tended not to get married at all. They'd spend a year with someone and move on to somebody else. There was also the old tradition of marriage by sale. You bought the woman from the father. Of course, you add to the fact that divorce was rampant. Uh, William Barclay notes that in one of the historical documents, there was one lady getting married for the 27th time, and that she was the 26th wife of her husband-to-be. People were involved in homosexuality, polygamy, concubinage, and so life was messy, to say the least, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. And so I'd like you to think of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and you can turn there, as Paul's commentary on the teaching of Jesus about marriage and divorce. And in verse 10, and we'll get there in a moment, he references what Jesus taught on marriage and divorce. And because you're going to know this by this phrase you're going to hear, not I, but the Lord. And in verse 12, he teaches something new something the Lord did not address in his teaching on marriage and divorce. And we know this by the phrase, I, not the Lord. But this is as authoritative as if the Lord himself had taught it because Paul said his teaching came from God by who? The Holy Spirit. 
That's chapter 7, verse 40. The, Christian, the Corinthians had earlier written Paul with a bunch of questions on a wide variety of topics, including marriage and divorce. And in chapter 7, Paul addresses questions about single people, married people, people married to believers, people married to unbelievers, people who are already divorced and now they are single. Do they have a right to remarry people who are virgins? Fathers with daughters that are virgins, should they give them in marriage or not? People whose husbands or wives have died, should they remarry or not? I mean, all these issues Paul is dealing with. So he kind of covers the whole gamut of questions. Let's look at chapter 7, verse 10 and 11. He says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. Separate means divorce. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So Paul addresses the married and references Jesus' teaching on divorce from Genesis 127 and 224 in Matthew chapters 5 and 19. We looked at all those this morning and last week. He says, in this case, the spouse who is divorced should remain unmarried or reconciled to their former spouse because why? Would the implication be if you... Not to remarry. The divorce was unlawful. And if it was unlawful and you remarried, what would you be doing? Committing adultery. So he doesn't, he wants, Jesus wanted to stop the proliferation of adultery. Paul's agreeing with him. If they remarry after an unlawful divorce, they become adulterer and they just turn the person they married into an adulterer. Look at verses 12 and 13. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife, who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So now Paul addresses a different category of person. Those who are married have come to faith in Christ, but are now married to an unbelieving spouse. What do they do? Well, because God's intention for marriage is what? Monogamous, permanent, lifelong oneness between a male and a female because God hates divorce, even though the married couple is now unequally yoked. Paul says, stay married. You get that? Stay married. But what about God's desire for his people to produce godly offspring? Well, he addressed that issue in the next verse. Look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, what does this verse mean that an unbelieving spouse and children is made holy by the believing spouse? Well, the concern here is that the unbelieving spouse will corrupt the marriage and the children. But Paul says the opposite will happen. See, instead of the believer getting corrupted, the unbeliever is going to get sanctified. Now, what kind of sanctification is this? What do we instinctively think when we read that verse? Salvation, right? But do you get saved by having a Christian spouse? No, you do not. Do children get saved by having a Christian mother, a Christian father? No. What this means is that they are set apart for blessing because marriage originally was supposed to be what blessing. a blessing so if a two unbelievers are married 
they're equally yoked, one becomes a believer, they don't divorce, and that blessings of God flow into that marriage. Okay? Obviously, for what purpose? So that the children and the unbelieving children, unbelieving spouse will become believers, be saved. Exactly. In other words, instead of an unbeliever corrupting a home, a believer in the midst of the unbeliever brings blessing into that home. Well, why? Because God is pouring out his grace and blessing on you as a believer. So what it influences the person who's one flesh with you. So instead of that person corrupting you, you're going to bring a positive Godward kind of influence on that person and on your children as well. And that's what we call being salt and light. Christian influence. Verse 15. But the unbelieving partner separates. Let it be so. In such cases, a brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Now, separate means divorce. So if an unbelieving spouse divorces, the believing spouse is not enslaved or under bondage. Well, why? Because God has called you to peace. He hasn't called you to, to a life of fighting and trying to keep somebody in a marriage that clearly doesn't want to be married. It's the same idea of Romans 7, 2, and 3, which says this. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. So that the so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. So you're free. You're not under bondage. It's a very important principle to understand. It means that you don't need to compromise your Christian principles to keep an unbeliever in a marriage. If that person has to get out of that marriage because of the godliness of your life, then the Bible says, divorce, let it happen, and then you're free. Free to remarry. But as soon as you start to compromise your Christian principles, you will lose a blessing you are to bring in that marriage. See, a fighting, coarsome home is not God's will. You're called to peace. And neither is a compromising Christian. Remember 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2? Ladies, especially remember this. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your husbands, so even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word, by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Do everything in your power to be a godly witness in your marriage, except compromise your Christian principles. If your husband is in the same situation, you follow Paul's commands in Ephesians 5. What did he say for the husband to do to the wife in Ephesians 5? Give yourself up for her. Sanctify her. Cleanse her. Nourish, cherish. That's how you treat your wife. How you treat your own body, that's how you treat your wife. Be as loving and sacrificial and tender and good and gracious and understanding as you can be to your wife. Don't ever abandon your Christian principles and your place of responsibility, husbands, that you have in that relationship in order to save it. And if after doing all this, your unbelieving wife wants a divorce, then grant them that wish, stop the conflict, live in peace and freedom. You're called to peace. You're called to freedom. 
Now, 1 Corinthians 7, 16. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Don't try to keep a marriage together to save a spouse. I mean, if they want out, let them out if they're an unbeliever. I mean, how do you know you're going to be the one that leads them to faith in Christ? And why would you spend your married life fighting in a situation where someone just wants out for the sake of evangelism? You don't know if they're ever going to be a believer or not. God does. And he's the one who will save. So now we see the first biblical reason divorce other than adultery. Abandonment or desertion by an unbelieving spouse. Now the question is this, are there other exceptions for marriage? Well, I believe there are. In such cases, see, what does verse 15 say? But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. Then what? In such cases. You see that? The question is, what does it mean by in such cases? Well, Wayne Grudem is a distinguished research professor of theology and biblical studies at Phoenix Seminary. Um, he's also a founding member of the Council on Biblical Womanhood, Manhood and Womanhood. And uh, a couple years ago, uh, he wrote an article called Grounds for Divorce, Why I Now Believe There Are More Than Two. It says, like many other conservative evangelicals, he'd held a lo- he had long held the view outlined in the Westminster Confession of Faith that I just read to you. Why did he change his mind? Because it was tied to the three words, in such cases, 1 Corinthians 7.15. He writes this, I now believe that 1 Corinthians 7.15 implies that divorce may be legitimate in other circumstances that damage the marriage as severely as adultery or desertion. This change in my position has come because I reached a new understanding of Paul's expression in such cases in, such cases in 1 Corinthians 7.15. He goes on to write this, that 1 Corinthians 17 implies this, that divorce was a legitimate possibility not only in cases of desertion by unbeliever, but also in other circumstances similar, but not necessarily exactly like desertion. A reasonable possibility is that in such cases in 1 Corinthians 7.15 means in this and other similarly destructive situations, that is situations that destroy a marriage as much as adultery or divert. Or desertion. Now, what would some of those be? Well, he put these up here. I put these up there for you. You can see them, obviously, abuse. If an abused spouse is forced to flee the home for self-protection from ongoing violent abuse, he says, in his judgment, that would be a situation for divorce. Abuse of children, Extreme, prolonged verbal and relational cruelty that is destroying the other spouse's mental and emotional stability. Credible threats of serious physical harm or murder of a spouse or children. Incorrigible drug or alcohol addiction accompanied by regular lies, deceptions, thefts, and violence. Incorrigible gambling addiction that has led to massive, overwhelming indebtedness. He says in some cases that may 
work. Incorrigible addiction, to, for example, to pornography. And then he says this, though. Situations that are not legitimate grounds for divorce. Marriage is difficult. That's not a reason to divorce. A husband and wife aren't getting along. That's not a reason for a divorce. If one spouse wants to marry another person, that's not a reason to divorce. We always keep in the back of our mind, it's a permanent oneness, stuck together, a lifelong commitment of monogamy. But why are there so many divorces, even within the church? But you could say that they, they don't know, but it's pretty clear what the Bible teaches on some of these issues, but still we're divorcing. Well, let me show you how easy it is to be deceived by Christian pastors and counselors and divorce for unbiblical reasons. If you go to the website crosswalk.com, I think some of you may have been there, you can find an article entitled, What Does the Bible Say About Divorce? Are There Grounds for Biblical Divorce? It's an article written by a pastor, I won't mention his name, but he holds degrees from conservative universities or seminaries, who advocates for divorce based upon unbiblical reasons. Take Malachi 2.16, which says, obviously, God hates divorce. But he also hates a man covering himself with violence. Now, this term, covering himself with violence, comes from a Hebrew word that can also mean covering his wife with violence. This implies that the husband is physically abusing his wife. The problem is, I could not find one single commentary that agrees with this man's interpretation of that. While it could mean this, the best text everything says it doesn't mean covering a wife with violence. Every commentary I looked up, and I spent some time looking at this, that the phrase covered himself with violence is a figure of speech. For a husband to divorce his wife for anything other than biblical reasons is like a man covering his garment with the blood of his victim. It does not refer to any specific physical abuse of his wife. But based on his interpretation, this pastor or counselor reasons this. And he's a direct quote. I advise any woman who has been hit by your husband to consider getting as far away from him as soon as possible and never to look back, divorce or otherwise. Now let me give you, let me create a common marriage scenario and see how this advice holds up. A believing woman or man, unhappy in her marriage, is contemplating divorce. And she initiates another argument with her husband because she is tired of his passive leadership. Ladies, does that sound familiar? It's been going on since the Garden of Eden. The argument becomes so heated that his passive aggressive nature comes out and he physically strikes his wife. This is the first time in over 15 years of marriage that he has physically struck her. He apologizes for his reaction but according to this pastor, this woman can now biblically file for divorce. Does that sound biblically legitimate? But you know that any person unhappy in a marriage, any believer unhappy in a marriage, reading that 
can recall uh, probably an instance that happened, therefore they think they can get divorced. Here are some other reasons he gives for biblical divorce. The husband who consistently refuses to live up to his responsibility of loving his wife as Jesus loved the church may in some cases have violated his marriage vows and made the marriage contract null and void. He quotes Ephesians 5, 25 through 33. Husbands, how many husbands listening today have consistently failed to love their wives as Christ loved the church? Raise your hand. And if you aren't a husband or were a husband, raise your hand. We have all failed in that. Right? But I have good news for the wives of those husbands. If you're unhappy with your husband, you can now biblically divorce him according to this pastor. And we're not even talking secular, you know, liberal or secular counselors. This is a, a, a pastor teaching this. But let's put the shoe on the other foot. Here's another reason he gave for biblical divorce. The wife who undermines and or disrespects her loving husband may in some cases have violated her marriage vows and made the marriage contract null and void, Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. How many wives listening today have consistently, and by consistently I mean more than once or twice, undermined or disrespected their husbands through regular nagging and arguing, raise your hands. It's funny too because the wives aren't raising their hands. Maybe, or even ex-wives or widows, I mean, if you've done it, okay. Honestly, every wife listening to this sermon has failed on a somewhat regular basis. So husbands, good news for you, you are now free to biblically divorce your wife. Now, if this was true, when Solomon wrote the following verse, remember this? Proverbs 21.9, my life verse. Better to live in a corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. If this were true, why would Solomon say to continue to share a house with your nagging wife? Is he not clearly implying to stay married? Of course Solomon is. So surely the quarrelsome wife, quarrelsome wife, is undermining and disrespecting her husband in all her arguing. Here's another example. The husband who refuses to get a job in order to meet the needs of his family is worse than an unbelieving non-Christian, 1 Timothy 5.8. He has forfeited his role as a husband and violated his marriage vows. Now in this scenario, after some counseling, the wife should financially, this is how we advise the wife, financially and physically separate, but not divorce the husband in hopes of forcing him to change. See, you need to do everything you can to do what? Keep the marriage. If this fails, I mean, he is just on welfare, and you're there taking care of yourself and, and working and whatever, and you're not living with him, the a believed husband who refused to work should be brought before the church. This is how it works, and called on his sin. If he refuses, what's the next step? 
he's excommunicated from the church. Because the church leadership is now saying that this man is not giving evidence of what? If he doesn't repent, he's showing that he's what? He's not a believer. There's no evidence of a transformed heart that always repents of sin. And by refusing to repent, the church is saying that the individual is not a believer. And by turning the unrepentant individual over to Satan, the church's hope, individual will be brought to repentance. If not, now you have a case of what? An unequally yoked what? Marriage, the believing wife and the unbelieving husband. And what has he done? What are the biblical guidelines? If he refuses to work, what's he doing? He's really abandoning the marriage, right? He's deserting it in many ways. Stay married unless the unbelieving spouse wants a divorce. And most likely this will happen because the unbelieving spouse will not want to continue in the marriage. But to leave a husband because they refuse to work is not a biblical reason to divorce. It's not comfortable. It's not the ideal. But what are the biblical reasons? They got to come within, in such cases, within reasons according to Scripture. God hates divorce. Divorce is not necessary because a greater way to approach it is to love and forgive and restore. And by the way, that unbelieving husband refuses to work. Most likely, do you know what he is going to do if he's not married anymore or if he's not with his wife? He will commit adultery. Then you're free to, to move on. But only after you've put out all the effort to save the marriage. So I'm going to close this morning by reading an article from Psychology Today written by Rachel Clark. She does not identify as a Christian, but she wrote a powerful story about divorce and remarriage. This is but an unbeliever, I believe, so just keep that in mind. It's, the title of this short story is Boomerang, the short story of a divorce, reconciliation, and remarriage. One woman's hard questions bring her back to her ex-husband. It was written just about 11 years ago, just over 11 years ago. This is what she writes. One night, a few months post-divorce, I'm kneeling well after midnight at my window. My new partner, we'll call him Joe, someone I now fully believe is my soulmate, lies asleep behind me in the cheap, too hot apartment we now share, and in which we have begun to welcome my two young sons on their periodic visits as per the joint custody schedule. Staring out the window, the dark breeze in my arms, I cannot place my unrest and unease. After the years of doubt, turmoil, and the agonizing months leading up to it, I had wanted this divorce and imagined that once it was enacted, things would get easier, lighter, more fun, that I would be happy. As I stare in the dark night, I recall how I'd entertained doubts about my compatibility and chemistry with my ex-husband. We'll call him Sam. On our first few dates, more than 15 years earlier, I'd known instinctively that with him there would be a real family and a bedrock of trust, the likes of which I'd never known. I'd fallen in love with the sure-footed, devoted adult way he loved me. But by the time of our divorce, 15 years later, our story didn't sound so sweet. It had changed drastically. 
to something more like this. We once stayed together back then because we were both young and naive. We didn't really know what we wanted. It felt safe, but not in a healthy way. Qualms that had surfaced over the long course of our partnership had catastrophically overturned our experience of our own reality. But I don't realize this yet. Instead, tonight, the dark outside mirrors a black sense of dread in my heart. Because tonight, I'm finally starting to ask questions. Right now, kneeling here, I have to believe that the doubts were true. My whole life and the lives of my children have changed because I believe those doubts, that we had serious problems in our marriage, that we no longer loved each other like that. That it was time to move on because we weren't compatible and couldn't find joy together. Yet for 15 years, we strode forward together. We made substantial careers for ourselves, visited our families, had dates, made good food and friends, moved across the country twice, bought houses, took trips, had beautiful children. Right now, kneeling here, I have not yet confronted the ways in which our doubts had undermined our own reality. They'd fed a growing wound between us. Oblivious to what was really happening, we tried to alleviate our painful disconnection from each other with blame, resentment, contempt, and defensiveness. We'd activated the tragedy of making each other wrong. Our marriage had become like a beautiful mountain that also happens to be on an unidentified active volcano. Red hot lava simmered beneath the surface. And the pressure was building. So when I met another also married man in the midst of surviving the sleep gutting colic of our second son, the suicide of a friend and a recent move 3,000 miles from extended family, it was too easy for the volcano to spill over. Joe diverted our attention away from the real issue. The few puzzle pieces in our marriage that had not been put into place. If it had been, hadn't been him, it would have been something else sooner or later. The town clock tower chimes twice, and I began to hesitantly grasp why I am brooding, kneeling here beneath the dark night beyond our window. Things with Joe and with my post-divorce life in general are much harder than I expected. In other words, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. This is true in how Joe and I relate to each other. Uh-oh, maybe we aren't compatible either. And in the very complicated and painful experience of living apart from our children. It's also true in the emotionally volatile ways I now find myself relating to my ex-husband and the behaviors and stress I see in my children. I've also noticed uncomfortably that sometimes I deeply miss my ex-husband, Sam. And I'm definitely not happy. And so in these dim, shadowy moments, I am now finally forcing myself to ask if the beliefs that brought down my marriage are really true. And if they are not, then what on earth have we done? One day, a few months after Sam and I have remarried, I'm kneeling outside next to my sons and husband. The sun is shining. The leaves ripple a glowing new spring green. We are in the dirt saying goodbye to our 16-year-old family kitten or cat. We each say a few words to the loving family member who kept us company all these years. The boys affix Lego guards and toy soldiers to protect her. 
and mark her grave with stones and a hopeful oak sapling. Incredibly, people next door are outside singing hymns. This has never happened before or since. The melodies quietly give way to the sunny, quiet breeze grazing our skin. The boys are done. They race each other to the tire swing, oblivious to what they will never know. I watch them, overwhelmed in this moment by what they almost lost. Sam and I rise. He wraps his arms around me, head bent against my ear, and says gruffly, Thank you for sharing your life with me. I feel his tear graze my skin. There are better alternatives to divorce. So I would say to you, any married couple, obviously know what the Bible says about divorce. Be careful in the counsel you get from even Christian pastors and and counselors, take it back to the Word of God. Amen. And so I would like for you this week just to do this. We need in our country a return to biblical marriages. You saw that data, okay? Relationships, just because the divorce numbers are down doesn't mean the relationships are any easier or getting better. I would say that they are deteriorating even more. And if our country, as I said before, you want to save the country... You save the family. You want to save the family? You save the marriage. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, as we close our time this morning, I want to thank you in advance for whatever money you brought in for this offering for this lawn tractor. I thank you for this time from your word. I trust that you have spoken to the people in areas that I am completely unaware of because you know them intimately. We thank you that we can gather together and worship you freely, fully aware that there are other people in other countries that risk their lives to worship you in, in a group. And so we're grateful for the freedoms you've given us here in America. And Lord, I pray that just as we're called to be salt and light in our marriages, I pray that we would continue to be and strive to be salt and light in all of our community here in Auburn and beyond. We thank you for this time this morning. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You're free to go. Enjoy this semi-humid day. And God bless you.